This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, all you art history babes. Hi. <laughs> Wait I, didn't on know, I didn't know you were waiting on me to greet them as well. Hello. <laughs> Hello, babe nation. We have a new giveaway. We love to give stuff away when we have it to give yes, away. We just have to save up to have enough stuff to give away. <laughs> when we acquire things <laughs> to give away, we like to give them away. And we have a new giveaway starting today, July 17th and running through August 17th. If you purchase an item from the Art History Babes store at arthistorybabes.com. You will be entered to win this giveaway. And that is one entry per item. One merch equals one entry. Exactly. So if you get five merches, if you get three coffee cups and a t-shirt and a tote bag, that's five entries. That's that's five. Five of them. So what's in the giveaway, you might ask? Well, let us tell you. An Art History Babe trademark t-shirt in Cranberry. It is a size small, but it's kind of a big small. Yeah, it's a roomier. You could do a lot with it. You could. You really could. Listen to our Ruth Rippon episode. <laughs> we'll tell you all the things you could potentially do with it. You could get DIY with it if you want. There is a necklace, a very simple uh, black pendant necklace by a lovely listener who does handmade jewelry, Allie Bremer. It's awesome. It's like brass and black leather. It's cool as all hell. And then there is a print of the four of us in Berlin that was printed by our featured artist, Zach Clark. There's a crystal from the the mountains of Shasta, California. <laughs> mountains of Shasta. Oh my gosh, that's the fanciest it's ever sounded. From Mount Shasta, California, right downtown at Soul Connections. It's a pretty magical place up in Northern California. We've got a fun crystal from there. And then last but certainly not least, a catalog uh, from a Ruth Rippon exhibition. Mm -hmm. So if you're unfamiliar with Ruth Rippon, make sure to head over to our Ruth Rippon episode amazing ceramicist and it's a really beautiful catalog with some really cool images yeah so you can be entered to win all of those goodies all you have to do is you got to pull the trigger on that merch you've been wanting to buy and you can check out our new stickers which are very affordable four pack of art history babe stickers there's coffee mugs, there's t-shirts, there's tote bags, all kinds of cool stuff. And also our featured artist prints are up in our store. So a print set, a triptych by featured artist Zach Clark is available. And that also is included in this giveaway. So buy some merch, guys. It's... It's a win-win here. Yeah. Check out the merch, arthistorybabes.com. You walk away with something no matter what. Right? You're the winner here. <laughs> we're setting you up to win. Uh, also, we're on YouTube. 
I'm just going to keep reminding you all that we are on YouTube. In <laughs> case you haven't heard. Uh, just dropped a new video. We're recording today. We're just trying to make all that content, podcasts, YouTube. We're all over the place. So make sure you get subscribed on our YouTube. Watch those videos, like those videos. And yeah, I think that's all we got for you. I think so. So enjoy the show. Enjoy. From Welcome to the podcast. I'm Corey. I'm Natalie. I'm Ginny. And I'm Jen. And we are the Art History Babes. And today we're talking about Mr. Ai Weiwei. Ai Weiwei! Who is uh, the shit, basically. He has a great name. (laughs) I love that name. It's a fantastic name. What's been going on? I had a very scrumptious smoked turkey at my Thanksgiving (laughs) dinner this year. Hung out with family. I got to be um, the problematic auntie that drank a lot of wine and embarrassed my nieces and nephews. It was really fun. Nice. What about y'all? Oh, uh, (laughs) I had two Thanksgivings. And it was cool, it was tiring, I was very full. Two's a lot. And I was wine sleepy, both days. (laughs) And that was about that. But I had smoked turkey too. My uncle smoked it in a giant uh, barrel that looked like a trash can. But it was delicious. I think that's the way to go with that particular fowl, (laughs) is smoking it. It's delicious. (laughs) I did not have turkey. On Thanksgiving. You're I, a rebel. I did have pecan pie and some bomb-ass Chardonnay, though. Ooh, oh, uh, girl. Which was delightful. Um, I don't know. What did we even eat? I don't know. I don't remember. I think we had, like, stir-fry or something. <laughs> um, I would much rather have that than... <laughs> I'm not a big fan of typical Thanksgiving I'm foods. I'm not either. Honestly. I really am not, um, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I, I love the idea of eating a lot, but I'm not huge. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I'm like... Typical Thanksgiving foods, except like mashed potatoes. So Thanksgiving was chill. We have a a Black Friday tradition that we do. You and the bow? Me and the bow. And on Black Friday, we wear all black and do whatever the hell we want. And it's usually like some kind of fun adventure that doesn't typically involve shopping. And this year, we went to a exhibit at the... San Diego Contemporary Museum of Art. Oh. And it was sick. It was it was a whole I I know I sent oh. Tad into this. It was a whole Chicano <laughs> exhibit. I was going crazy. <laughs> she was sending me these snaps and I was just so upset about not being in San Diego. Yeah, it, it was a great exhibit. Um I mean it's a smaller space. Well, they have two and we went to like the one downtown and then there's another one different part of town but they're both smaller spaces but it was a a, an entire like modern contemporary chicano art exhibit some really great stuff there was one whole uh piece that was it was a very like multi-dimensional thing there was a film and there were a lot of there were photos and there were prints that you could take basically what it was is this artist he traveled around and and followed the original borderline of mexico and he would put out these these silver obelisks 
like where oh, the yeah you sent that to yeah, me too. Yeah, he put out these silver obelisks on where the border used to be before like we took California. And, oh, no. Yeah, yeah, but before we we took it all basically. Right. Um, <clears throat> so he he um, placed obelisks and take these really beautiful pictures of like this big silver obelisk like against whatever background happened to be there or whatever landscape is really cool. Did he um, say why he chose obelisks? I don't know if I. I mean, we didn't watch too much of the film. Yeah. I don't know if I saw some anything directly about it, but I mean, I my first instinct was that obviously it had a lot to do with power. Civil power. Yeah, yeah for sure. That's that's my assumption. I don't know one hundred percent for sure. And then there was also um, they had a whole bunch of pieces from Cheech Marin. Yes, Cheech. yeah, from his personal collection. A lot of people don't know this. Cheech Marin from from the the wonderful, amazing, revolutionary duo of Cheech and Chong. (laughs) Cheech Marin has invested much of his money in collecting Mexican and Chicano art. And so a lot lot of the work from this exhibit apparently was from his personal collection. Yeah, and it was so dope. The main display of the stuff from Cheech's collection was done like salon style which was really cool oh that is so cool yeah it was really neat and they, there were some great great work that is and so awesome yeah was, I yeah I read about I didn't even know this I read about it in juxtapose like a year ago that Cheech has this incredible vast collection of Chicano and Mexican art and I was like, good on you, yeah, dude. If I real. had money from making silly movies, <laughs> I would absolutely be buying art with that. Yeah. Um, no, it was an amazing exhibit. And then after that, we went to the San Diego Maritime Museum. That also looked very cool. We looked at some old-ass boats from yes. the yeah. 19th century. I mean, it was a great day. <laughs> I was, like, living vicariously through your snaps. It looked so fun. It was. It was really fun. It was beautiful because it's always beautiful in San Diego. Oh, um, yeah. It great was, place. It was nice. How was your Thanksgiving, Nat? My Thanksgiving was supposed to start with a 10K. And <laughs> that sounds awful. Ended up starting with me still being drunk. Then having the worst hangover of my life. While you were doing a 10K? No, no, no. I didn't make it to the 10K oh. because I was still drunk. So I had to go that back to sleep. That made me, like, afraid. <laughs> no, no, no. I was still so drunk when I woke up that I had to go back to sleep. Woke up a few hours later. Still a little drunk, but better. Um, and then proceeded to throw up nine times throughout oh my God. the oh. entire day. It is the worst hangover I've ever had. Before that, my record was seven times throwing up in one day. <laughs> So this was nine. Wait, hold up. What did you do? I went to a bar. I met up with some friends from high school that I hadn't seen in a in a long while. Uh-huh. And I drank Moscow Mules. Ooh. And I had had a lot of wine. And things just got out of hand. Okay. Right. I mean, not actually. Like, I, nothing inappropriate happened. I just died. No, I'm day. sure you were fine. You're... Well, the thing is, people didn't know. Like, I, I, I blacked out and no one knew. Wow. Dang. That's Which, great. No, but it's not. <laughs> like, in one way, it's great because it's like, oh, you didn't do anything that embarrassing. In another way, it's like, it could have been prevented if people had known how out of hand it was getting. It's right. Just no one else knew. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well. But I was with people who I loved and trusted and who took care of me. I made it home to my bed just fine. Everything was all good. I just was paid for pain. it heavily yeah. the next day. Well, you're here. 
Cautionary tale, folks. <clears throat> if you don't drink hard alcohol often, don't. Just don't. Just don't. Just don't. <laughs> just don't. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just don't. Be rough. Just like my it. mom tells me, stay hydrated. It's yeah, that, that important. Whole, it makes all the difference in the world. Really. Uh, you so know, important. your mom's such a wise my dad. My dad has been telling me for years because, you know, my dad is um, he's your, he's your quintessential party animal. I mean, he's 67 and he still parties. I'm like, dad, how? And he tells me all the time, he'll be like, babe. You know, if you're going to drink, just uh, make sure you're drinking a glass of water between every drink. And I'm like, one thanks, for one. Dad. You're one you know one. what? I'm, and that is the trick. It really is. I'm going to take your dad's advice and go grab a glass of water right now. <laughs> Do actually. you want me to bring you a glass of water? I will bring you a glass okay, of water. Okay, great. That would be I great. I bring you're you a glass class of water. Act. Oh. You're on top of it. Thanks, Dad. You're a class Hydration action. Thanks is... for being the hostess for me. Honestly, even if you're not drinking, hydration is ridiculously important. Yeah. You just, like, did you know something like 80% of Headaches or dehydration headaches? Uh, that's a real thing. That totally makes Absolutely. sense. Thank you, dear. You're um, welcome. So, yeah, that's it's funny. Whenever someone's like, I feel this or I feel that, I'm like, are you dehydrated? Yeah, for real. That's yeah. my go-to. Like, when I'm sad, I'm like, am I dehydrated? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, I'm just so upset today. I don't know what's going on. Are you dehydrated? Maybe. <laughs> um, but, yeah. So, that was our Thanksgiving. <laughs> stay hydrated. And water is life. <laughs> Speaking of, I mean, it's... Yes. It's fight's not over yet, but, but Dapple got at least kind of stopped for a while. Yes. Thank Lord. I know. Whatever Lord you pray to, thank that thank one. Thank him. Because yeah. no Lord Dapple. Or lady. Or multiple. Yeah. Obviously, I yeah I don't think it's over yet, but at least the water protectors have a break and they get to chill because it is fucking cold in North Dakota right now. I don't even want to think about it's it. It's insane. It's only been like forty degrees around here, and I have been just like feeling like I am in the tundra. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, um. Truly. Kind of piggybacking off of our last episode, which was all about our election feels that mm-hmm. we were having, mm-hmm. um, we are going to be talking about one of our favorite political artists, who is a, I think, a great influence for maybe what should uh, should be coming up in the art world in mm-hmm. the future. I hope so. I hope so. Anyways, Mr. Ai Weiwei. God, yes. that guy. He's so, so good. He is so good. So, gonna start off with Ginny. Yes. Some of his, his early years. The early years. Oh. <laughs> okay. So, I, I accidentally opened to a page of my notebook that is not on my portion of Ai Weiwei, and I just glanced at this quote I wrote down. <laughs> I have no idea what the context is, but it's, The lap of a whore is a devil's boat. <laughs> That's not what I'm going to talk about, though. I wish I would have um, had that quote for that prostitution paper I just needs wrote. Someone to tattoo that on their body. I don't even know what that was in reference to. I This notebook is full of podcast notes and wine yeah. stains and weird quotes. I have a notebook like that, too. Oh, God. Okay. But Ai Weiwei. We're back on track. So Ai Weiwei lived in New York City. And this was when he was a younger man, and it was predominantly in the 1980s, and that's kind of the section that I'm going to be talking about the most. And so he moved to New York City from Beijing, and I have this great quote from him talking about his experience in New York when he first transitioned there. Before I came to New York, I only knew this was the heart of capitalism, the most sinful city. Of course, 
I am crazy excited to go since I hate communists. I thought that's a place I would love to go, but I knew nothing about New York. All of my impressions came from Mark Twain and Walt Whitman. Aww. <laughs> Love so, him. I know, isn't that sweet? <laughs> um, and he was only 25 when he moved to New York City, and he lived there for nine years. And when he was in New York, he was exposed to artists like Keith Haring and Allen Ginsberg. I never know if it's Ginsberg or Ginsberg. It's Ginsberg. I'm always inclined to say Ginsberg because my name is Ginny. I'm like, Ginsberg. Um, <laughs> Allen Ginsberg. <laughs> he is my friend. Um, <laughs> I'm going to call him when the youth demonstrations for increased personal liberties took place in Tiananmen Square in 1989, which is a really big deal for um, kind of the Chinese political stage, but also just kind of the greater political stage at the time. And even though he was not in China when this took place, it was still greatly influential to his work and his work as being highly political and politically charged. What he did the vast majority of his work in New York City was a series of black and white photos. There were about 10,000, so he really was producing quite a bit over the nine-year period that he was in New York City. And these black and white photos, uh, we'll post some of them, <laughs> one of them are really great. Some of them have Ai Weiwei in them. Others show different Chinese immigrants living in New York City in apartments and walking throughout New York City and kind of showing the experience of him and people that he knew who were uh, living in New York City at the time. There are several self-portraits of him, and we'll post a few of those. And he also did a profile of Duchamp, which he made with sunflower seeds and a wire coat hanger. And he was very influenced by Duchamp and carried around a book about Duchamp and this profile that he made of Duchamp, which again, we'll post on the website, was kind of carried over into his later works because he did uh, an installation at the Tate Modern in London where they uh, constructed porcelain sunflower seeds that were integrated into this larger exhibit that he had there. And so this is kind of his experience in America and all of these sort of photo series that he made that on the one hand were portraying how or portraying his own experience in New York City as he called it like this kind of embodiment of like capitalism and sort of sin but he was excited about that but on the flip side he was still very involved and aware of kind of the political climate of China at the time and would later return to China. But this is just to kind of give an introduction into um, Ai Weiwei's early years and those early years that took place in New York City where a lot of other um, contemporary artists that we know of uh, were working at the same time. We will pass it over to Natalie, who's going to talk about some of his probably most known work yeah was notable or what's yeah. they're up there yeah <laughs> one of them one of them's probably the most the other one's kind of 
Okay, so in 1995, he created his piece, The Dropping of the Han Dynasty Urn. The actual artwork is a triptych of silver gelatin prints, but it's also almost a performance piece because the triptych represents him literally dropping this urn that was a Neolithic vase. It was They were using <clears throat> burial purposes to provide the deceased with food and drink in the afterlife. The triptych shows him holding the vase, and in the second one, he's letting go of the vase, and in the third photograph, the vase is breaking on the ground. So it's a combination of the actual printed triptych and almost a performance of the breaking of Mm. the vase, which is a little controversial, depending on how you interpret value and ownership. So he's bringing kind of into the conversation a lot of these issues i mean he owned the vase at the time that he broke it so i i mean i don't know i feel like we should open this up into a conversation because (laughs) i mean so i mean it it belonged to him in the sense that he bought it yes correct at a flea market that's where he at a flea market bought from my understanding, that is where he got the majority, if not all, of the vases that he uses in works. At a so, flea market. Yeah, because he was, um, his family, like, I think his father was really into antiquing. It should also be noted that until the 20th century, these vases were almost considered, like, I don't want to say cursed, but taboo in the way that people wouldn't want to handle them or keep them as sacred objects because they were associated with death in a negative way why was it because they were used in a a funerary context they were seen as bad luck so handling them or keeping them in collections was like seen they were they were viewed as objects that could bring bad luck so i just okay i'm literally just asking because i'm so curious and i don't know anything about this so these bases were acquired by Iowa from flea markets, but they're genuine Han Dynasty vases. That's been the confirmed. one that he broke was Han Dynasty. All, the vases in total, all of the ones that he's used in various works, uh-huh. range from five five thousand to seven thousand years ago. So okay, and so the popular lore then is that they are somehow bad luck. They were considered to be bad luck up until the 20th century. So beginning in the 20th century is when people started seeing them as somewhat valuable. That was where the cultural shift happened. Okay. Where they went from being something that was seen as bad luck that people wouldn't really want to have to something that should be collected and preserved. And not dropped. Dropped. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. so, So that's kind of the context. And... He's really bringing a lot of these ideas to the forefront about destruction. He's worked with other ceramic vases. You know, again, we're dealing to with 5,000, 7,000-year-old vases. Probably his most famous painted one, he painted the Coca-Cola symbol onto it. And he's painted other ones with different paints. So he's used, like, auto paint. He's used more, like, um, like wall paint. And he's really dealing with ideas of destruction, obviously, with the dropping of the vase, trivializing with the Coca-Cola. But that also gets into ideas of value because Coca-Cola is not a small company. 
Um, it is very much a capitalist company that brings in a lot of money. So you could get into a debate of, and I mean, I don't think that most people would think this way inherently, but are you raising the value by putting such a valuable, valuable, symbol. exactly onto this base? There's this weird kind of like, it's like a double edged sort of people valuing old things, but not really taking the time to understand them or like get into touch with the history of them. Whereas everyone knows Coca-Cola. So it's like, well, I mean, it's playing off of Andy Warhol and the consumerist capitalist trap. It's like, but he's doing it in such a like, a way that irks people so much more because people just want to inherently believe that the age of these objects Mm -hmm. makes them valuable. Like, I'm sure there were people who got upset about this who don't even know when the Han Dynasty Or know why they're... Yeah, exactly. Right, yeah. Well, that's really interesting, this, like, juxtaposition of the two, this, like, reverence to these old dynasties that are so disconnected from what the reality is for a 20th slash 21st century Chinese person Mm -hmm. living in China. Mm -hmm. And also putting this image that recalls to us this capitalistic dynasty, Mm -hmm. such as Mm Coca-Cola, which for like Americans, for instance, we have this sort of love affair with Coca-Cola. We grew up with those stupid polar bear <laughs> commercials and the Santa Claus with the Coca-Cola mm-hmm. going like, Ooh, you know? Yeah, yeah, but yeah. We, we missed Coca-Cola in its heyday back when it had actual cocaine in it. hey Shit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, there's so many levels. There are, yeah. And, oh, 100%. And back 100%. to what Jenny was saying with him coming from communism and trying to push away from that and then the capitalist lore and like you and his infatuation with people like Andy Warhol, who he mm-hmm. very much directly references and talks about in interviews and such. With Duchamp, the same idea. These are ready-made objects. He, mm-hmm. especially with the, the dropping of the Han Dynasty urn, he's not. Well, he is changing it by dropping it, but right. he's not tra- using traditional methods of art making that people would associate. So it, it mm-hmm. falls into the realm of ready-made, which he comes to again and again in his work. And then, as Jen was saying, so the whole idea of the 20th century Chinese citizen, and that is the time when these urns started to retain value in the eyes of the society. Maybe not society in general, but collection culture in China. Well, there is an elite culture in China. As much as the Chinese are communist, there's still in every communist society, there's a small group of elite who hold power. It's the same idea as here. It's like art retains value. Art becomes valuable when the quote unquote art world says it is valuable. Mm -hmm. Like someone needs to kind of impose value on it. So Mm -hmm. these vases, you know, they become something of value and something to be collected by this community in China in the 20th century. And in that it's hearkening back to a perceived like golden age and that's why they became valuable and 
But it also, the destruction of the vase connects to the futurists, who we've talked about in previous episodes. Ah, and yes. yes uh, Corey can help me out with this because she was, <laughs> she was filling me in on this connection, which is a very, very interesting take. Okay, so this whole idea of futurism obviously we're talking about like world war Two era and it was a very common kind of notion that you know things are going to be better in the future so i mean if you go back throughout history you have this really interesting push and pull of like things are better in the past things will be better in the future yes. like similar conversations are happening in the like 20th century everywhere it's just like remember the 90s member 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 jurassic park <laughs> if you if you aren't up to date on south park like you oh need my to be god it. watch it because member berries are fucking brilliant um anyways there's kind of this push and pull of like you know, life will be better in the future and life was better in the past and like this idealization of, you know, both of these time frames and it's obviously something we're still de- dealing with today. But the futurists were very much of this camp that like the future is where everything's at, everything's gonna be better in the future. So there was this whole pushback in communist China kind of against the past in some ways where it was a lot of destruction happened to these kind of artifacts, to things that represented the past of China because they were moving past it like they were we were done with the past we're moving into the future so while the dropping of the Han Dynasty urn is bringing attention to this maybe like overvaluation of things from the past it is also bringing attention to the fact that historical artifact had been and continues to be destroyed without anyone even, you know, passing a second glance regularly within that culture and many other cultures. So it is, yeah, as Natalie said, it was, it's kind of a double-edged sword. It's, it's bringing up two kind of contradicting, but at the same time, very much interrelated ideas about history and culture and what that means. <clears throat> well, you um, know, the Romans did that during the advent of like Roman Orthodox Christianity, the destruction of pagan idols. Yeah. Yeah. So icons, images, artifacts from the past can be dangerous yes. when yeah. you're trying to, let's say, instill Christianity into the masses or instill communist values. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which is a perfect segue for <laughs> an actual Ai Weiwei interview where he is asked about his destruction of the Han Dynasty vase. Does anyone want to, like, play role-play with me? Like, <laughs> I'll role-play with you. Okay. Jen is Tim Marlowe, and I am Ai Weiwei. Take one. <laughs> People think there's an ambivalence in the way you use historical fragments. On one level, it can be argued that you're reconstructing the past, You're using historical detritus to remake something for the present and the future. And other works, like dropping a Han Dynasty urn or dust to dust, you're being willfully destructive. Are those critical works or are they provocations or a mixture of the two? You could say it's neither. It's just this guy being bored. To me, it's not so subversive. It's just a silly act. Boys will be boys. Oof. 
So you admit there's a silly, childish, playful, but also destructive streak in all of this? Not really destructive. It's just an attitude. And yet, as a collector, you seem to have a very respectful, you might even say reverential, attitude to the past in certain ways. If you collect these exquisite objects, therefore you paint over or temporarily or permanently destroy historical fragments. That is a contradiction, isn't it? You call it being destroyed. I'm not like the Taliban. Their hatred destroys things. I think I change the form. It's just a different way to interpret the form. One summer, a very good collector and expert in Chinese furniture said when he saw my furniture, oh, that's the moment you make me really understand Chinese furniture. So I think in my interpretations, I still pose a very philosophical question about how and why those forms have been respected and for what reason. I'm still questioning those very essential aesthetic judgments, where those judgments come from, and what and in what sense it has followed the tradition of making that pot. I wouldn't call it being destroyed. It just has another life, you know? It's a different way of looking at it. So, beginning in 2011, um, Ai Weiwei conceived an idea to make zodiac heads. So the title is Zodiac Heads or Circle of Animals. Either or, I think they're interchangeable. He's addressing a few things here. The most base level is the idea of Chinese zodiac signs becoming as globally recognized as Western astrology. For example, we all, I think, know our years, our animals. Yeah, yes. I am the rooster or cock, as it's more commonly known. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> what are no you, Corey? Play? Um, I'm actually looking at the uh, the picture I have on my Instagram from this exhibit, actually, of the dragon. Ooh. I am here of the dragon. And I'm a snake. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, just this it's it's fun you know if you've ever eaten a chinese <laughs> it's fun guys it's fun, it's fun. <laughs> obviously it's a lot more Natalie, meaningful that's in problematic actual, i know it's problematic exactly that was guys that was an example problematic I didn't mean that. no it, it's fun in the sense that for us in california we know this because if you sit in a Chinese restaurant, you have a placemat that has these around the edge of it. That's it's generally, true. Yeah, and I'm not trying to trivialize it. <laughs> no, Obviously, it's, there's it's, a lot more meaning real. and history and going on behind it. But that is what Ai Weiwei is addressing, is the way that it has been trivialized in Western society. So they are bronze heads of the 12 zodiac animals, and there are appropriations of originals which were made by Giuseppe Castiglione, an Italian artist who was brought, he was an Italian Jesuit, who was brought to China to produce these sculptures for the Garden of Perfect Brightness. And this is actually a place that Ai Weiwei would go to sketch or draw when he was younger. Holds a personal place in his heart. I'm speaking for him. He didn't say that. <laughs> I'm ad living. I'm sure he feels that way. <laughs> Similarly, I right? hope he feels that way. But the appropriations that he produces, it is obviously of the 12 animals, but differences include things like his personal biography, Chinese mythology and history, um, 
relations between China and Europe, authenticity, so again, the idea of the original versus the copy, these are copies of original sculptures, but sculptures made for China by a European, there's a lot of dialogue going on here, and references to the art business, so he's bringing in a lot of moving, what's the expression, moving wheels, moving, moving parts. parts. Moving parts. <laughs> wheels move, no parts. <laughs> Moving parts. There's a lot going on here. God <laughs> but these, around the time that Ai Weiwei created his version, the originals or some of the originals were up for auction in London and they were going for bank. So he's creating these at a time when Europe is... I mean, and not all of Europe, obviously, but the European art market is making money off of something that they took from China, and China at the same time is wanting these sculptures back. And so this is a narrative that we see time and time again with different countries, and China is different in the fact that it wasn't colonized. Usually we see this in situations where a country has been colonized by another country and then they lose a lot of their cultural heritage i.e art in most situations so this is slightly different but it's the same issue these sculptures belong to china and now they're being sold in london and who has the rights i mean uh, Uh so (laughs) iwayway is in his ever interesting way making a commentary about it trying to start a dialogue This is an exhibit that has moved all over the world, not even just the United States. It was in our uh, neighboring town of Sacramento at the Crocker Art Museum, where Corey was able to see it. It began in New York, actually, at the um, Pulitzer Fountain. And it's still moving. It's going to be moving through next year. I don't know if it will continue after that. It could. Another kind of side note interesting feature of this exhibit is that he did not create the sculptures. He hired craftsmen and artists to create them. If you watch the lovely documentary, Never Sorry, I would Never Sorry, he um, has one of the artisans working on a sculpture in the documentary. And that, again, alludes back to people like Andy Warhol and his factory and kind of this mass production of art. And Ai Weiwei is in no way ashamed of this. He is the first to talk about his art as being very conceptual and that he doesn't feel like he has to have a hand in the creating of it. And yeah. Bravo. Yeah. Bye, guys. Sorry for my slurring and my my overall tipsiness. It's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Corey. Up next is Corey. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Um, Alright, so I'm <laughs> going to get into Ai Weiwei's, really his history um, as a political reactionary and some of the really 
intensely political work he has done out speaking against the Chinese government. Natalie mentioned the documentary Never Sorry, which is available on Netflix, so you should all check it out. It's fantastic. Sponsor us, Netflix. <laughs> That'd be awesome. I know, right? We make bank. <laughs> Ai Weiwei, he's very much known as this reactionary political artist. He is very well known for his uh, use of the middle finger. This is a visual element that is very much associated with him. And it comes back to this series called Study of Perspective that was created from 1995 to 2011. And then again in 2014, and he has since kind of added to it this year. And this series is a series of photographs that have Ai Weiwei uh, flipping off significant landmarks. So it's, it's taken from his perspective, and then his left arm is extended outward, and you see the landmark in the background, and you can see his his um, middle finger. The proverbial bird. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and the My first, favorite of the birds. The first and perhaps most significant of, of the series um, was taken in Tiananmen Square in uh, 1995. Mm. So, obviously... He is saying some stuff to the Chinese government about the Chinese government. Likewise, this work is, is very important. It kind of harkens back to his interest in um, Duchampian ideas and aesthetics because you have a play on words going on. Study of perspective. Obviously, he's in the images, he's dealing with linear perspective. Like, he's, they're landscapes. He's dealing with linear perspective. He's got his, like, arm extending outward toward the focal point. And at the same time you're dealing with personal perspectives, opinions about political things or people in power. So it's kind of a double meaning there. Obviously, these are controversial because why wouldn't they be? <laughs> um, An image of flipping off Tiananmen Square yeah. is going to elicit some sort of reaction. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, there's he flips off uh, the Eiffel Tower. Like, I mean, so many. And the Eiffel Tower looks like a giant middle finger. It does. So it's technically <laughs> returning the favor. Most recently, though, he posted this on his Instagram. He flipped off Trump Tower. Ah, which love it. is fantastic. Love you so much, Ai Weiwei. Um, Ai Weiwei. Ai Weiwei. We um, like, he obviously has always been a political artist. As Ginny talked talked about before his images in New York of protests he was interested in in political protest he was interested in the speaking up against government he always has been interestingly his father was also an artist and a famous poet who um, was imprisoned for political activism it's very much you know something that's in his blood and is very important to him so he's always been political but not quite to a point where he was, you know, upsetting authorities until about 2008. That's when that really started to become a big thing with the Beijing Olympics. So in 2008, Ai Weiwei is a very well-known artist at this point. We have already had dropping of the Han Dynasty urn. We've had some very prominent works by him. 
And he is asked to design the stadium for the 2008 Beijing Olympics. And he designs what is known as the bird's nest, which is the centerpiece of the Olympic Games. But interestingly, after he designs this, he speaks out publicly against the Olympic Games. And this is very much um, in reaction to the displacement and kind of mistreatment of citizens that was going on in Beijing at the time to essentially make way for the games and to quote unquote Mm -hmm. clean things up people were pushed Uh. from their homes they were very much mistreated which is unfortunately exactly what was just seen in Brazil with Mm -hmm. the Olympic Games literally every Olympics has had the same story of pushing out the derelict who are usually the people who are living in the areas that they want to host these events are the poorest people, the hungriest people, the most disenfranchised. They get just so easily swept aside and then they bring in the monumental building. They have the Olympics and then after it's a wasteland. Yeah, it's awful and and it's way too common. But I weigh way. Our boy was pissed off about it. And he publicly spoke out against the games, which he was the first prominent figure to do this. Like, this was not, this was very unheard of. Like, so it was a big deal, especially considering he designed the fucking thing. Like, (laughs) so it was like, obviously there were um, authorities that weren't exactly excited about that. So this was kind of the beginning of him Um, ruffling feathers, I guess. Then also in 2008, the devastating Sichuan earthquake occurred Mm -hmm. in which over or approximately 70,000 people died. It was an absolutely horrible natural disaster. Obviously, people, including Ai Weiwei, were very much affected by it. And then Ai Weiwei ended up becoming personally invested in this whole thing in relation to the fact that, um... A lot of people died. A lot of children died because of what Ai Weiwei has kind of deemed bad, like, construction. Like, Mm -hmm. a lot of schools were poorly built. Um, There was a lot of deaths happened in this earthquake, unfortunately, because of bad construction of buildings and bad construction of public buildings. So Ai Weiwei becomes very invested in this very quick. And he, he feels, as he's a very, he's very concerned with transparency, Transparency in the government, he thinks is super important, as we all do, I think. Um, obviously, it, it's it's very necessary. So he gets really invested in this project. He starts collecting names of uh, student victims of the earthquake, as well as their birth dates. Mm-hmm. It's not an easy process, like finding these names. And the authorities did not cooperate. They did not want him doing this. They didn't understand why he was doing this. Like, there was not a lot of cooperation. So he starts collecting the names. Of these victims, he ends up with 5,212 names and birthdays. And then on the one year anniversary of the earthquake, he posts it on his blog. The blog was shut down by the government. And then surveillance cameras were installed in his studio. So the government wasn't happy that he did this. And I mean... Could you imagine having surveillance in your studio? Yeah, it's oh, crazy. Oh my God. Yeah. I just think of like the studio artists that we know. And Could you imagine down. if they had surveillance in their <laughs> studios? Getting a little too personal. Ah! Yeah. This becomes a 
extensive project of his. And in 2009, he does an installation called Remembering on the facade of the Haus der Kunst in Munich. It is a really extensive, large installation. It consists of 9,000 backpacks, which this comes from when he visited the wreckage of these schools. He found these oh. piles of backpacks from these children. Oh very sad. Very heartbreaking. So this installation, 9,000 backpacks. Um, they're yellow, red, 9, white. 9,000? They're yellow, red, white, and green. And against like a blue background. And they're arranged to read, she lived happily on this earth for seven years in Chinese characters, which is an excerpt from a letter written by the parents of one of the victims of the earthquake. So obviously it's to raise awareness. It's to, it's an homage to, to these victims. It's to honor them. But Chinese government, not too fond of any of this. They don't want any of this happening. It makes me, like, so emotional. Yeah, it's, it's really it's sad. Really messed up. And... She's only seven. And so the Chinese government's not particularly fond of Ai Weiwei's subversion or questioning of their authority. He ends up being assaulted by a police officer. And this is all documented in that... Like, this is all in that documentary. Dang. He's assaulted by a police officer to the point that it lands him in the hospital. Jesus. Like, it's... Yeah, it's not cool. Which just fuels the fire. <laughs> and he files a complaint against the government, against police. He also very quickly after filmed uh, a video called Fuck You Motherland <laughs> in which wow. it has people of all nationalities in their native tongues like saying fuck you motherland and it ends with him standing there in Chinese saying fuck ah! you motherland. And it was like there's um on the documentary there's I think it's like art historian who worked with him and she said when like the video came out she sat there and watched it and she was like don't say it don't do it don't say it they're not gonna let you back in and then he said it and she just like like went numb <laughs> like um uh... so obviously I mean you know if we're looking at this from a western perspective like that's you know maybe not great but like not gonna get you put in jail yeah um but it is something that could potentially get you put in jail in a communist government he shortly thereafter did the sunflower seeds installation at the tape modern that Ginny talked about before he did it in 2010 this is one of my favorite pieces of his but unfortunately i don't really have the time to go in depth about it but it consisted of 100 million ceramic hand-painted sunflower seeds there is a really good episode of this other art history podcast called state of the arts they don't really post very often but they did a Ai Weiwei episode a couple years back Mm -hmm. And they go into a really in-depth analysis of sunflower seeds. So I suggest you listen to that to kind of get a full understanding of that piece because it's really cool, interactive. Like you could walk over these seeds and... I mean, can we talk about it like a little bit? Or is well, it... they were created by many different artists, right? Like it was, yeah. it was a and Ai Weiwei. So it's like a multiple yeah. artist. Well, exhibit. it was no, no it's Ai Weiwei. It was Ai Weiwei in his studio. A lot of his art is created by other people, but in the same vein of someone like Andy Warhol, where the conception gotcha. comes so many from of these him. Gotcha. And workshops. Yeah, yeah. It's just like Jeff Koons, and again, yeah. very transparent about it that he doesn't. Yeah, feel that detracts from. No, his. that's that's and really interesting. I, 
there, in the documentary, he says something really great at one point, and you might remember better than me, Corey, but something about, like, it's like he's almost not taking ownership. He's saying, like, I come up with the idea, and then other people execute it. But, like, in a way that he's almost giving them rights. Like, they create it. Like, he's not trying to own all of the things. He's just proud of his ideas as artwork. I love that. Yeah. That's really It awesome. is. And it's, it's like, the next step of someone like Andy Warhol is to yeah. say, like, as an artist, I come up with ideas and conceptions, and other people execute them. But with yeah. Sunflower Seeds, I mean, he he was, right? Like, he did it, too. It was a whole workshop of people sitting there painting these ceramics. Yeah, right. Sunflower Seeds. And Individual he, And seeds. he made them alongside the rest of his studio. Yeah. And it's this vast installation of 100 million little sunflower seeds, and you were allowed to walk on it and mm-hmm. play in it, and... Um, there's there's a lot of interesting um, cultural meaning behind using sunflower seeds and the fact that they were ceramic and the way the work played out. But like I said, I encourage you to listen to that State of the Arts episode because they go into it really in depth. So that was in 2010. And then in 2011 was basically when shit started getting like really crazy. His Shanghai studio was demolished by authorities. Um, they just came in and knocked it down. And I mean, it's interesting because obviously he built the bird's nest for the Olympics. Like he was not always an enemy of the state, you know, it's so it's this very like quick change in feeling towards him and his Shanghai studio is demolished. And then in April, on April 3rd, 2011, uh, Ai Weiwei disappears. He was detained while trying to fly out of Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. And this led to the free Ai Weiwei movement, which was kind of a worldwide backlash to him being unfairly detained people all over especially in the arts were kind of speaking out against it and saying let let him go um he was held for 81 days and he was guarded at all times 100 percent of the time they never left him unguarded and finally in june 20 june 22nd 2011 he was released on they claimed the government claimed that he had been held on tax evasion (laughs) I, a likely story. Yeah. I mean, believe what you will, I guess. He ended up being charged a lofty tax bill, I think, from the Chinese government, but whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, that year, he was named Art Review Magazine's mo- uh, Most Powerful Artist of 2011. Um, and then when he was interviewed about this, he kind of talked about how he didn't necessarily feel very powerful at that time and then he said in the interview it's my favorite Ai Weiwei quote of all time he said maybe being powerful means to be fragile oh so great um that speaks to me (laughs) yes I know what you mean (laughs) right I remember actually watching. I can take a page from his book. I remember watching um, Never Sorry, and we watched it in my undergrad art theory class. That was the first time I saw it, and I remember that quote. And I just like, I was like, yes, like that speaks to my soul, on, like a very real level. So Ai Weiwei, he was released in June twenty second, two thousand eleven. But he was basically on this probation, this pretty intense probation, and he was not given his passport back from the Chinese government until 2015. Four years. <laughs> Holy He <no>. was <laughs> not allowed to leave China. Oh. Um, and they watched him very closely. So he was a little, I mean, he was still making, which I'm going to get into here in a second, he was still making work and stuff, but he was a little more, a uh, little less reactionary in those four years for obvious reasons. I would be too. 
too. Yeah, I think he was trying to chill out a little bit. He's got a little baby son, probably just like trying to take care of his Isn't he cute? He's so cute. Um, Oh, little man's. Yeah, he is a little man's. So so he's chilling out a little bit. But yeah, was not allowed to leave China again until 2015. And likewise, his name was was censored on the internet in China. It's not Uh, easy to find his stuff in China. People do, but it's not particularly easy. Yes, right. Obviously... Uh, there's some issues there with what he was saying or what he was trying to prove. In 2014, he did an exhibit at Alcatraz, San Yay! Francisco, and it was fucking dope as shit. It was so cool. <laughs> I have the little the book here. So he was a, um, approached by one of the, the curators of the exhibit, who is also the head of an arts foundation in, in San Francisco, about this potential idea. And he absolutely loved it for obvious reasons. I think, I mean, like, Ai Weiwei, Alcatraz, detainment. Boom, boom. Prison. Uh, you know, Alcatraz is, is known, like, it is the prison that no one can escape from. It's the prison on an island. Like, it is... Unless you want to get eaten by sharks. <laughs> like, All that's... those bay sharks. That is what There's sharks in that island. I know. Bay sharks. Fuck bay sharks. Bay- <laughs> Fuck those bay sharks. Uh-huh. They're ruthless. I, I almost feel like that doesn't even need to be explained. I wait, wait, at Alcatraz, like, of course, you know, like... Yeah. The second I heard about it, I was like, that's fucking brilliant, and I will be there. Brilliant! Um, <laughs> and it opened, it opened in 2014. I have a quote from his artist statement that I just think is fucking perfect for both this and for our current times, politically, artistically, what have you. I hope at large will help build understanding and awareness about our history and current conditions. Today, the whole world is still struggling for freedom, and there is nothing ahead but more struggle. Many of my friends are still in jail for utterly nonsensical reasons. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And the power that put them there has no respect for the law. In such a situation, only art can reveal the deep inner voice of every individual with no concern for political borders, nationality, race, or religion. This exhibition could not come at a better time. Though, when one is fighting for freedom, any time is the right time. Freedom is meant to be collectively protected and shared. You are protecting not only yourself, but also others fighting for the same cause. Yes. Word. Remember that shit. He set up this exhibit at Alcatraz, but uh, during this time frame, he was not allowed to leave China. So he did this all long distance, which is not an easy thing to do when you're like an installation artist. Holy hell. Yeah. That sounds stress inducing. (laughs) I'm stressed out just thinking about that. So he sets up this exhibit. I went and saw it October of 2014. So right after it opened and it was like a really interesting experience i was actually i was actually out here for my um campus visit 
for you. Oh. That's right when there. I met Corey. No. Yeah, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> not yet. Not, not yet. yet. No, no, this is, this is before that. <laughs> I came out and did my can like I was doing canvas visits and stuff and yeah so went to the exhibit at Alcatraz and it was like a really interesting experience because if you've ever just been to Alcatraz to do like the tour that's what a lot of people were there for they even like the like opening thing where the dude like talks to you before you like go into Alcatraz he like asks who was there for Ai Weiwei and you know we all raised our hands and it wasn't very many people. Like, a lot of people were just there for the fact that it was Alcatraz and they had no idea who Ai Weiwei was or even what the hell was going on. So they were there to do the Alcatraz thing and learn about its history and, you know, Al Capone and were, all that stuff. Were you able to notice... Because I've never done a tour of Alcatraz just on my own. Like, were you able to notice people reacting to Ai Weiwei that weren't there to see it? Like, yes. do you think it was still able to move people even though that wasn't their intention? Yeah. And that was kind of the interesting thing because I actually have done an Alcatraz tour, like, mm -hmm. by itself. And also, Ai Weiwei exhibit was the second time I had been to Alcatraz. And you could... Def, I mean, because it was it was so incorporated with Alcatraz. You couldn't, they weren't separate. It was a yeah. part of Alcatraz. So if you wanted to see all of Alcatraz, you were seeing the exhibit. But did, but did people seem moved by it? Like, did they seem to... Some did and some didn't. Yeah. Um, and it, it was interesting because I think some people weren't there for Ai Weiwei, but it was like this little bonus. So it was a very weird interconnection of people who were there for the art to see it, to see it in the space. And also people who were just there to learn about Al Capone and they ended up with some contemporary art, you know, which is like, if you're not an art person, can be a lot to take in. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, it was interesting. It was a really interesting mix of people. Some of the different exhibits are different parts of the exhibition. One of them titled With Wind was kind of the first thing you saw when you walked in. And it was this big, like, uh, Chinese dragon that was made out of these, like, hexagonal kites. And it was very elaborate. And it was beautiful. And it was very just, like, in-your-face and stunning. Like, it took up this whole space. It moved in and out of this big main space. And there was also these quotes that had to do with freedom and detainment and these different kind of issues. And one of the quotes was, I think I have a, actually have a picture of it on my Instagram as well. One of the quotes is by Ai Weiwei himself and it was like, every one of us is a potential convict. Mm. Yeah. So kind of playing with these notions of who's a convict, who gets to be detained, you know, power, yeah. authority, yeah. freedom. Then there was Trace, which it consisted of 170 portraits of people that have been imprisoned or exiled due to beliefs and affiliations with different causes. And they were portraits that were made out of Legos, which is a technique that I've always been using more recently. They're very reminiscent of Andy Warhol, if you look at them. They kind of have the same, yeah, the pop, the kind of layers and colors and use of bright colors. But interestingly, they're made out of Legos, which kind of makes them more lighthearted. But at the same time, it's such a heavy topic that it's interesting. And yeah, and you have all these people and their names were on the portrait. So you can, 
you know, look up why they were detained and things like that. My favorite is Dante Alighieri, for the record. Just so y'all know. Just so you guys know, the, the Dante one is my favorite. We'll put that one up on our pictures. Dante. Dante. Dante Alighieri. And then this one was really cool. This one, and there were there were a few other aspects of it that I'm, I'm not talking about. Like, the whole exhibition was just really smart. But then there was um, Stay Tuned which was a sound installation and it was really great because this one I think was the, probably the most incorporated with the rest of Alcatraz because they took 12 cells from like the block of cells that you walk through. If you do the Alcatraz tour, you walk through and you can get like the headset and you know learn about who was in what cell and blah 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 and they blocked off 12 cells and in each cell um, you could go inside and there was a stool and you would sit on the stool in the cell and there was sound being projected into the cell and only one person could be in each cell at a time obviously and I mean other people could come in but usually it was just like one person at a time and you'd go in and you'd sit and the sound in the cell was either like a speech or poetry or music by people that have been detained for their creative expression and it was really moving because it was all these different like voices and different languages from different cultures and it was like you got to sit there and experience you know this piece of art basically that 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 person created when and was subsequently detained for and one of the most interesting it was the one at the very end actually you sat down and it was uh pussy riot it was music by pussy riot which is super relevant because they were speaking out against our friend Vladimir Putin. Who, Vladimir Putin! Who... Our friend. Our friend. Our good friend. Our good buddy. <laughs> who has, it's been proven by the CIA, affected our election. Ooh. Don't forget that shit. Oh my god. <laughs> I didn't even know. You didn't know that yet? Oh man. No, I mean, I our just Our good like... friend Vladimir did not tell you that? <laughs> I'm just... I'm yeah, joking. Jennifer. I laid my hand in this election. <laughs> Hope you are doing well. I just want to laugh about it. I just want to laugh. Just laugh. Good. Yeah, so Pussy Riot, uh, if you don't know that story, you should look it up. They, look it up. They were, they were like, m two members, I think, of Pussy Riot were sentenced to prison for some two to four years, yeah, for speaking out against uh, Vlad, Vlad mm -hmm. Putin. So you know what, Vlad, we're sick of your shit. <laughs> Get out of my face, All right. Vlad. You look great, topless on a horse, but that's not what makes a leader. <laughs> So just get out of our face. <laughs> God, that was words of wisdom, Jen. God, words that, of wisdom. That was a perfect way to wrap that shit up. <laughs> that was fantastic. Hey, I got some shit to say. I got some shit to say about <laughs> okay. Mr. Ai Weiwei. Say a few. Say a few All things right. about just, our boy. You know, just to wrap it up. Just to wrap it up. So Ai Weiwei, he's such a great guy, and you know what? He's not done. Alright. <laughs> He's not done. He's still doing stuff. And it's just as relevant as it ever was. In Florence, Italy, at the Fondazione Palazzo Strozzi. I probably butchered the no, pronunciation. No, that was beautiful. Whatever. Ai Weiwei is currently, currently, as in right now, 
featured in a retrospective at the Palazzo Strozzi. The Palazzo, which, by the way, the Palazzo is a 15th century Renaissance palace. It belonged to the Strozzi family, who were the rivals of the prosperous Medici. Oh. oh the Medici. If you know anything about Renaissance. Did, the Medi- did they get poisoned by the Medici? I don't know. They probably did. I think they There's did. There's a new Netflix I just saw that. Oh my god. What is it called? It's Medici. Medici. What? And it's like a drama, historical drama. I gotta go home and watch it like right now. Right? <laughs> Okay, so the the Medici, however, are not the focus. We're talking about the Strozzi, and the Strozzi <laughs> have the Palazzo, and that is where um, Ai Weiwei is currently installed. He has the first time ever that he has a major uh, retrospective. His retrospective is titled Libero, and... It spans the length of his career from the 1980s to the present day. So at Libero, we get to see various um, installations by Ai Weiwei, many of his Lego portraits, and there are a few portraits of some, like, you know, Renaissance families. And so it's very much, you know, he did a couple works to like accommodate for this very peculiar place that he gets to host his retrospective. It's peculiar because this 15th century Renaissance building, this is the first time that this building has ever been completely opened to one artist to exhibit his works. So the Palazzo is currently featuring Ai Weiwei's works throughout the entire building. And so if you find yourself in Florence, this exhibit's going to be going on until January 22nd. So go check it out. But what I find especially interesting about this exhibit is the installation titled Reframe. So Reframe features 22 rubber boats. These are rubber boats that are red rubber boats. They're featured (laughs) (laughs) along the facade of the palazzo. And these rubber boats are meant to draw attention to the treatment of refugees coming in from Syria and other locations in this Egyptian Middle Eastern area. So Ai Weiwei, he's still out there drawing attention to this treatment of refugees. He's out there still making political work. And I'm really glad to see that at his retrospective, Ai Weiwei is using the location and the fact that he gets to have a retrospective, he's using it to make a poignant political commentary on the fact that there are now this influx of refugees in Europe that are coming over in boats and many of them are perishing along the way or are being turned away and and I just think that it's very um, fitting that an artist like Ai Weiwei is making some sort of statement about the current state of affairs. So 
kudos to Mr. Ai Weiwei for using his first major exhibition to make a very poignant statement on this issue. And that's really how I want to wrap up Mr. Ai Weiwei right now. If you happen to find yourself in the just lucky uh, position to be in Florence, Italy, go check it out. In addition to that, he also brought back 2,400, or sorry, 2,046 articles of clothing from refugee camps that he had visited in Northern Africa. And he visited over 20 camps in that time. And if for any of you who follow him on Instagram or who want to go back and just look at the Instagram posts he's been posting for the last, I mean, six months, maybe longer, he has really like saturated his account with those images. And um, as someone who follows him in a kind of, you know, realization of our sick world, it seems like a lot of people unfollowed him because of that really the likes went down dramatically did you notice that yeah wow and i mean in a way it's i mean it's it's instagram culture i think if you're flooded with a lot of the same images i think you know people are less inclined to pay attention which gets into a whole new issue but i mean he's he's not normalizing it he's just showing the reality like he's he's trying to bring to people's attention what is actually happening and these are real images of real people suffering but um yeah so but back to the exhibit he brought all of these articles of clothing back not only did he bring them back but he washed them and ironed them and just, you know, all around cleaned them for the exhibit. And a lot of the associations about him connecting to refugees can be connected back to his early childhood where his father was detained, or he was um, exiled for 20 years and detained in a camp, Mm -hmm. in a prison camp. So obviously it makes sense that Ai Weiwei would feel a very strong connection to these displaced people, to these people who are stuck in a situation that is less than ideal, to put it lightly. It is moving to see an artist who's not only just, not only making commentary about it, but immersing himself in that situation. And not to mention, he has a young child. Like he... He is kind of sacrificing part of his life to really bring attention to this and to expose himself to it and to expose other people to it. And I think it's pretty incredible. And it's I haven't seen any other contemporary artist involve themselves so heavily. And it's it's a pretty cool thing. No, for sure. He is easily the most yeah involved in I don't know stuff that really matters (laughs) for you know humanist like he really he really wants to use his place and his placement and his artwork to make statements about Mm -hmm. about the state of things he's aware of his potential to reach a wide audience exactly as Natalie was just talking about he is very alive on Twitter and Instagram. Um, his handle is at A-I-W-W. So if you don't follow him, you should. If you'd like to learn more about him, watch that documentary on Netflix. It's Never Sorry. Good. It's so good. And I mean, there there's a lot of stuff out there about we him. We could go on. We could. Um, we'll post all of our sources for mm-hmm. you. 
and everything. Including um, this New York Times article, which is not super lengthy, but does include a short interview with Ai Weiwei talking about his experience at the refugee camps. Mm-hmm. He's, I mean, and he's widely interviewed. You can find yeah, YouTube. You can find so He's a content-heavy artist. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, can find, you can find a lot. If you were, you know, inspired by this or interested by this, there are a lot of places to go in regards to Ai Weiwei. But I think... That's really all we have time for right now. So right. hopefully, if nothing else, it planted some seeds. Sunflower some seeds. Some sunflowers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hopefully it, it planted some seeds and you'll you'll look further into him because he's, he's pretty legit. Listener mail. We'll do a quick listener mail. Do, 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 do. do, do, do. Hi, babes. I love your podcast with three O's. In love. Uh-huh. I, I thought it was going to be in podcast. <laughs> I love your podcast. <laughs> I majored in art history, but went on to a career removed from that glorious world. Your podcast is brilliant. I sometimes listen, listen during tedious hours at work. I listened to your Memento Mori episode and wanted to share this video, which at least references the question of whether you can preserve a skull. Follow Ask Follow Ask a Mortician on YouTube. She is awesome and can illuminate all sorts of curious death-related questions. Love you gals. Keep up the good work and general awesomeness. Marie. Marie's a friend of mine from early days of life. Aww. And she's a doll and super smart and awesome. And she sent us this link from the Ask a Mortician uh, YouTube. Which about, we watched. Which we watched. It was and it fantastic. Was, it was amazing. Okay, so Ask a Mortician... <laughs> I just want to say that 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 babe, I just love her, and um, I I hope that I get to meet her one day because I think I want to wipe her for real. And also, that video was super interesting, and I got to have my heart broken just a tad bit because apparently you can't just preserve a skull. It's a bummer. Oh, it makes me really upset. She left on a hopeful. No. She did. We, we might be able to preserve a skull in the future. Now I have to break it to my dad <laughs> that I might not be able to keep his skull in my home after his death. So hopefully he won't take be, it too badly. You guys will figure something out. Yeah, you'll figure it out. <laughs> I'll um, figure something out, you guys. But yeah, ask a mortician. You're uh, you're the ultimate death we babe. We really, really oh enjoyed that. She yeah. was so good. She, she was, was great. She's beautiful. She's smart. She's funny. It was great. If you want to be on her show and just talk about death oh stuff. Oh my God, please. Like, that would be super swell. But thank you, Marie, so much. Thank you, listeners, for listening. If you feel so inclined, please write us a review on YouTube. It really makes all the difference in the world. Email us at arthistorybabes at gmail.com if you have any comments, questions, thoughts, want to join in on the fun. You can find us at arthistorybabes.com. We're on iTunes and Google Run Play. everything! And SoundCloud! Twitter and SoundCloud. Google Play! I just put us on StumbleUpon and we're on Pinterest. <gasps> I and we're on StumbleUpon! Oh my god. I, put, I try and put us on every possible thing I can think of on Corey's the internet. Corey's a business being. I'm working on it. Um, If you have any other ideas of places where I could put the art history babes, please let us know. Let us know. Um, or just put us there for us. Yeah, yeah just, just do it. it. Just, just do it. Just do it. Um, but thank you 
for real for listening because this is so much fun for us and we love that it's fun for you we love you you're great we love you all good night bye bye from Great topless on a horse, but that's not what makes a leader. <laughs> the Art History Babes podcast is made possible by support from our lovely listeners via Patreon. Head over to patreon.com slash arthistorybabes to help keep the Art History Babes going and for access to bonus content. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? outsourcing business tasks you hate what about selling with shopify whether you're selling a little or a lot shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage shopify is there to help you grow whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com try. Go to shopify.com try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com try.